Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Evan. Delighted that you're here online and in person for worship. I hope you are excited as we end our sermon series on Genesis. Uh, there's a lot we could have covered that we didn't, but uh, we've covered the fact that God is a God of blessing and promise. And isn't that good news this morning? Amen. It's okay to speak up. I know there's very few of us at home speak up loud so we can hear you too. Let's read our text this morning. We're going to read Genesis 45. I'm going to just do 1 through 11 right now. I encourage you to read the, the rest of it this afternoon because it just keeps getting more interesting as you read through the end, and I encourage you to follow along. This is our scripture reading, Genesis 45, 1 through 11. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for, uh, do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God has sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler over all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You and your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Come. Otherwise you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. The word of the Lord. Imagine, if you will, the ideal situation uh, for a, let's say, three- or four-year-old. We'll stick with a four-year-old. Uh, the ideal situation where mom and dad uh, build the perfect playroom, completely childproof. Uh, of course, injury can happen because they're kids. It can happen anywhere. But the, the chance of injury is only because of play, really. All the toys are age-appropriate. There's no way they can stick anything in a socket because that's all childproof. Everything's perfect in the room. But as the child starts to play, mom is sitting there in the room with the child and realizes there's one thing, oh, this is not age appropriate, let's get this out of here because this could cause a problem. But it's at that point that the four-year-old looks and sees the thing and wants the thing right as mom takes it away and a tantrum begins. Imagine that scenario. And finally, after a long tantrum, after not giving in to the fact that mom is trying to reason with the child and explain this is not a safe thing for you to have right now, perhaps later we could talk about it, whatever, it's a four-year-old, it's not necessarily going to work that way because reason doesn't work the same way at that age, they're trying to figure out the rules of life. Finally, four-year-old says, and this will happen sometimes, mom, leave. Mom, go. Right? Sad. 
It's kind of cute when they're four, right? You know you're teaching them, you know that things are okay, but can we just change two things in that scenario uh, and see how it plays out now? Imagine it's a house. Imagine it's a house stocked with everything that uh, somebody would enjoy for a leisure, full life, uh, free of labor. Um, everything's provided for them in the fridge and everywhere else in the house. Comfortable places to sit and watch things and do things and whatever. If we change that to a house and we change it to a 32-year-old or a 44-year-old or even a 55-year-old who says, Mom, leave, after setting all this up, it's not cute anymore, is it? It's something completely different at that point. God is a God of blessing and promise. God's intent is to bless. It turns out that as humans, we're pretty good at causing chaos. We're pretty good at undoing the blessing that God has tried to give us and the promise. We're pretty good at ignoring that. And God's business is to make order out of chaos. And what God essentially set up for humans from the beginning was something like that room. Now, it wasn't going to be a leisure-free life. Work matters, but it wasn't going to work against us either. And we started this sermon series in the beginning, at the very beginning of Genesis. And what we saw was a place that God created for humans and God to interact in harmony with each other. And for humans to interact with the world God created in harmony. That's a place of shalom. It's Eden, but it's of shalom peace, full human flourishing, the best God has intended for humans being experienced. And in an environment like that, there's no need for salvation from anything because there's nothing to be saved from. You're in communion with God and can be in communion with God unhindered by trying to do the opposite of what God wills or wants, which would be sin. As it turns out, as I said, humans are pretty good at creating chaos out of God's blessing, which is what Adam and Eve did and what we've continued to do since then. But God had a fix for that, which is when God created, why God created this covenant with Abraham and with Isaac, with Jacob, and through that family line that God is going to take the shalom that's broken and put it back together. See, now in this environment where shalom is broken, where God's intent is broken, there's a need for salvation from sin and the curse of sin to be restored to that right relationship with God. That's what God was trying to do, and the covenant was the means of achieving that restoration. That's been God's plan. And you can see that God is faithful to that plan through and through, even when humans are causing chaos in the midst of that plan. Even when God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who he makes the covenant with, are making chaos of God's plan, God is still faithful. If you look at verse 7 of our text, it says, God sent me ahead of you to preserve a remnant on earth. So even when everybody's trying to make chaos out of it, even when the very family line that's supposed to be the means and mechanism of fulfilling this covenant that affects you and me today because it's fulfilled through Jesus and that offer of salvation is offered through him alone to all of us, even through that, God preserves a way for that to be achieved because God is always faithful to his promises. And what I want us to hear this morning as we round this series out is that one, if you haven't already done so, choose salvation through Jesus Christ from that chaos to blessing. And importantly, once you choose that, stay faithful, even in chaotic times, even when the chaos tries to pull us back in to the curse of sin, stay faithful to God at all times. God's promise ultimately is order, 
and its salvation to pull us out of the chaos and the curse of sin, back to right relationship with him and with the world, back to redemption from that. But when we talk about staying faithful to God, why? Why stay faithful to God? One is really simple. Right is always right. Truth is true. And that which is right is right because it's godly, not because God created it. It's because it coincides with God's character. And so when we do right, we're actually living into the image of God, not away from the image of God. But another reason we could add to that, and a more important reason for our purposes this morning, is the issue of judgment that I want to bring up. Because as we look at Joseph, I want to not just look at the, the story itself, but I want to look at how it highlights how God operates towards us even when we're causing chaos, when he's trying to give us blessing. And I think you can see that. The issue of judgment, I think, is another reason to stay faithful to God, and a very important one. Because think about the most faithful people to God you can think of. And you can even pull that down a little bit. Think about people who are uh, really good at being faithful within their own company, to, you know, in, on the job, to their work, or something like that. But, but think especially of somebody who's faithful to God that you know or have known in your life. What keeps them faithful to God? I mean, there are a whole host of things you could pick out. Good discipline, habits of reading scripture, prayer, those kinds of things. But if I may point out one underscored, but I think historically important thing that keeps faithful people faithful to God, it's accountability to God. It's the recognition and realization that at one day, they will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And they want to stand as somebody who's been doing right, not wrong. That doesn't mean you save yourself, but it does mean we're judged by our works in the end as well. And they want to be doing right and be seen as doing right. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's when judgment is positive, if that's what the judge is saying, rather than condemnation, because the curse of sin is still on us. Even, interestingly, Cain and Abel, the first two children born in Scripture, Uh, When Cain kills Abel, and God comes around and starts talking to Cain, and he knows what's happened, but he looks at Cain and he says, and this is a paraphrase, buddy, if you're doing right, you have nothing to fear. He doesn't have to worry about judgment in a negative sense. So we consider the story then, considering all of that. Consider what's happened in Joseph so far. There's a lot we didn't cover and read today, but let's just recap very quickly. Last week, Joseph got the, uh, he had the dreams. He reflects those dreams to his brothers, and it was pretty clear in the text. If you read it, his brothers hated him, they hated him, and they hated him, and then they got jealous of him. So it didn't go well between the 11 brothers and Joseph. Joseph got that coat, uh, and I burst some bubbles saying it's not necessarily of many colors. It could have been a patchwork. It's not clear from the text what it is other than and this is an important point, uh, it's not a working coat, and it's probably more of a, like, a manager's coat, so it kind of fits in with the fact that his brothers are like, well, you got the coat, and now you're saying you're going to rule over us? What's the deal, buddy? So what they do is they try and kill him. Instead of killing him, they sell him into slavery. Once they sell Joseph into slavery, he ends up in Egypt, where he's wrongfully accused and thrown in jail, and he's basically figuring he's going to be there forever for the rest of his life. He ends up being pulled out, rescued, and becomes, as we saw in today's story, number two over all Pharaoh's household, essentially, and especially in charge of the food, uh, and then a time of famine comes, which is what what God uses to lead to this 
whole point. So his brothers, who tried to kill him and instead sold him into slavery, neither of which are a good thing, obviously, they finally realize when Joseph reveals himself that they're standing before their brother. So if we go back to verse 3, I think we can see something important in the story, but in how uh, we can approach God and God approaches us. It said in verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? Obviously, he hadn't seen his father, heard from his father. This is a caring question. Tell me more. I want to know how's dad. But then he said, but his brothers, it says, were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. They had this state of terror. That's really, that's the, the thrust of the word that's behind that. In the text, they, they were just petrified with fear at this moment. They weren't a little surprised. Sometimes it says that. No, they were, they were in terror at this. And why? It doesn't take a wild stretch of the imagination to figure out why they're afraid of the brother they tried to kill, but sold into slavery instead that's now standing before them. But I think if you dig deeper than just that they felt guilt and realized that he had the power of life and death over them, we can also recognize that they did something and they probably carried that guilt and they watched their dad's depression and sadness for years and years and years after that, but they carried that guilt to themselves and probably realized they'd never have to answer for it. And now all of a sudden, it's not even just a judge that they're standing before, it's their brother who has all this power that's standing before them. Of course, they're terrified of what could happen. But I think you see this throughout Scripture. When people actually end up in the presence of God, what's the, one of the most common things that God or even an angel says? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Hold on. That's what you see here. And one of the reasons that we don't need to be afraid first and foremost, we need to be reverent when we stand before God, is because a verse like Romans 5, 8, one of my favorites, but God demonstrates his own love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, while we should have stood there terrified, God said, I'm going to send my only son to die for you so that you can be in right relationship with me again. He says, don't be afraid, come close. But I want to recognize something in this, that those who follow Jesus, they don't need to stand in fear of judgment. They don't need to stand in in terror before God or be surprised because through Jesus Christ, the guilt has been taken care of. Sin has been taken care of and forgiven through Jesus Christ. But I want to ask a question that that I think helps us at least recognize the, the sense of weight of what's been lifted in that. So if you already follow Jesus Christ, have you ever, uh, have you truly wept and lamented over the weight that, and, and, and offense that your sin caused to God? That doesn't mean it's not forgiven, but have you really held it before God and recognized how much of an offense it was? And thus, how remarkable that forgiveness is. And I ask that because I think sometimes some of us have reconciled that and some of us haven't. We haven't reconciled the guilt and shame that comes uh, with the sin that we've caused and the offense that we've caused to God, even if we have been saved from that. And the reason we want to fully reconcile with that, the the weight is going to be taken away by Jesus, but if we haven't fully recognized, we may realize that we have parts of ourselves that are hidden from God that still need to be redeemed. We don't need to be terrified before God. In fact, that weight can be lifted. 
But I also want to get at, at the other half of this, that in this situation with Joseph's brothers, the fact of the matter is, I think they thought they got away with it, even if they carried that guilt. They never thought they'd see their brother again. And so, if you, whether you follow Jesus or not, here's a question. What blocks you or a person from dealing with your own sin, wrongdoing, guilt, and shame? Let me, uh, let me give three different sort of scenarios that all point to the same direction that will kind of probe into that a little bit. One is, I'm going to quote the, uh, a little bit of the song From a Distance from Bette Midler, and now it'll be in your head all day if you know it. Um, it's an interesting, if theologically incorrect, song that Bette sang. Um, it says, From a distance the world looks blue and green and the snow-capped mountains white. From a distance oceans meet the stream and eagles take to flight. From a distance there's harmony. And it echoes through the land, a voice of hope, voice of peace, voice of every man, and she sings in the chorus, and God is watching us, God is watching us, God is watching us from where? From a distance. God's watching us way off in the distance. But he's seeing all this, and then she points out some of the problem even in the world. From a distance we all have enough, no one is in need, there's no guns, no bombs, no disease, no hungry mouths to feed, and God is watching us, God is watching us, God is watching us from a distance. God's not in it, of course. It's a deistic view if you're wondering what the worldview and theological stance is. But God's distant. She names all the problems. We know all the problems in the world, and then some, right? We know that there's a lot to fix in the world, no matter what our worldview. But she's pointing out, yeah, and God's out there, and it all seems very nice to God. God's distant. Let me give you two other stories that, that I want to use to probe just a little further here with the issue of what would hold us from holding that guilt in and the sin in from taking it before God. Uh, when I was a hospital chaplain a number of years ago, I remember being called to a room and there was a gentleman sitting there who uh, had really, through alcoholism, lifelong really alcoholism, had pushed everybody away in his life. Um, so he's sitting in a hospital room, had no family, no friends, nobody to call on at this point in his later years. Um, he still had many years to go, but still it had taken a toll and aged him a lot faster than it should have, and his body was really slowly dying by that point, now all alone with nobody around him. And he actually, as we talked, had had a growing up that wasn't all that different from the toddler at the beginning of our story. He had a pretty good growing up, but for some reason, instead of dealing with some problems that came on later in life, he turned to drinking, and then that began to shut down his body. And by that point, he was giving up drinking, although he hadn't dealt with all the issues, uh, but he, did, he was doing it alone. And he felt this tremendous guilt, as we, as we talked, he felt this tremendous shame for who he had become and for what he, he did, but he definitely did not feel like he could take that to God. What place would God have for him? He'd done too much to be able to come to God with this. Contrast that with another hospital visit. This time I was an associate pastor. It was a, a cold call, which Every so often happens where somebody actually called me through a friend to go visit somebody in a hospital who I'd never met before. And it turns out it's one of these, this happens as well every so often too. It was somebody calling me into the hospital room, not so much for a personal problem, but to see if I could ask one of the church members to drive them about 400 miles west. I said, that seems kind of inappropriate since we don't know you uh, for me to ask that, but we can talk. Um, and we talked. And this was a person who was just 
full of pride and was never wrong about a thing. Didn't need to go before God for anything, although believed in God, but didn't need to go before God to have any forgiveness or anything. No, he was right about everything, and he would tell you, publicly or privately, he would tell you. What's interesting is for, for all of these stories, for the Bette Midler song, God is distant. We've got all these problems in the world, but God's not a part of that. For our gentleman uh, who felt this great guilt, God felt distant. I couldn't possibly take my guilt or my sin or my problems before God. I've done too much. For the prideful gentleman, God seemed distant. There was no accountability. He had all his guilt. He had guilt. Oh, we talked about it. But there was no way he was going to take it before God because God didn't need to do anything for that. He was in charge of his own life. God was distant. He could keep God at arm's length. But God's not distant. God's close at hand. That's the reality. So why stay faithful to God? We talked about right is always right, judgment. And that's what they're dealing with in our scenarios, that they're trying to avoid any of that or avoid even taking care of the problem. But I think it's important to recognize the closeness of God because in verses 4 and 5 of our text, it says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Finally, we can see in the story that God has been working all along in Joseph's lives and even in the lives of these brothers who were fairly unfaithful and they did change over time but kind of did the wrong thing as a rule, not an exception. In their terror... Joseph said, don't be afraid. Joseph asked them to come close to him, which as far as it's concerned in the time period and in the context that he's in, Pharaoh would never ask anybody to do that. That's inappropriate. Pharaoh's household, Pharaoh's people would not ask anybody to do that. That's inappropriate. So Joseph doing this, even with his own family, is highly inappropriate for the decorum of being in Pharaoh's household. And he breaks that and he says, come close to to me. And isn't that exactly what God does to us, even in our guilt and in our sin? He created Eden. Why? So he could be close to Adam and Eve. When that was broken, he created a covenant. Why? So he could call us close to himself and achieve that through Jesus Christ. God's solution for sin and for the problems that we cause is not to distance us, but to bring us close. And to say, come to me so I can fix the problem with you. Though our sin makes us distant to God, uh, are distant from God, God has invited us close. And it's through Jesus Christ that he does that. And so when I say choose salvation today, that's what I'm saying. And when I say stay close to God in chaotic times, recognize God is at work, even in the chaos, drawing us close in the midst of chaos and guilt and sin, drawing us so that he can redeem us and reconcile us to himself and put us in right relationship. The truth of the matter is, if we look at the world around us, and you can use the Bette Midler song to, to get to this conclusion too, you know who the problem in the world is? You and I. You and I are the problem with why the world is wrong. You and I and everybody else that has existed and does exist, that doesn't mean humans have no capacity to do good. We do have a capacity to do good. We just can't fix all the wrong that we've done. Only Jesus can do that. Our distance from God is not God's fault. It's 
ours, but God wants to fix it by calling us close. Let me quote uh, one little short bit from the most famous uh, sermon from Paul Peter Waldenstrom in the 1800s, and then we'll draw this to a close. Uh, Waldenstrom said, it was man and not God who on the day of the fall fell from goodness. It was he who became the enemy of God and departed from him. Yet God loved him to the extent that in Christ he sought him, not in order to remove his own anger, but man's sins. For when he gave his son, it was not in order that he might find a person on whom he could slake his anger in order to be able to love the world, but in order to find a person through whom he could save man, his fallen child, whom he still loved. We need to choose God's presence, not keep God at arm's length, not think that we're ever too guilty to come before God. God invites us to be healed by the power of his Holy Spirit through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the invitation. Come close, God says. Draw near to me. Don't stand in terror, paralyzed by guilt. Don't be possessed by pride, thinking God is distant or that you can keep God distant. God's business is to make order from chaos and to make you whole through Jesus. To come back to his shalom again. You could put this question a few different ways, but as we close, consider this. If Joseph can forgive his brothers for all the wrong that they did, is it possible that Jesus can forgive you? Draw close to God. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you give us an invitation to come near, and I pray this morning that for anybody watching uh, right now or with us who doesn't know you and has not drawn near through your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, extend that invitation through your Holy Spirit. If you're sensing that the Spirit is prompting you to say yes to Jesus, then start with that. Yes, Jesus. Forgive me. I turn from wrong, and I choose you. I choose your salvation. God, I choose your way through your Son. Lord, may that, in fact, be all of our prayer, even if we've been following Jesus for years. May we stay faithful through thick and thin, through the chaos that's around us. May we stay faithful and not ever let those daily sins and the guilt that comes with them bar us from your presence, God, but that we lay them before you and ask again for forgiveness because your blood is enough to cover even those. And your resurrection says that we won't simply die now, but we will live with you in eternity and in faithfulness. Lord, we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.